This episode of G'day World is brought to you by Whois.com, the Wikipedia for people. W-H-O-O-I-Z.com. If you ain't in it, you ain't anyone. G'day world. My guest today is Doug LaFollette. Now, let me give you a little bit of bio for Doug and then I'll uh, bring him into the call. Uh, I'm going to read his bio up on Wikipedia and just hope that it's somewhat accurate. Douglas LaFollette is a United States academic, environmental activist and politician in the state of Wisconsin. He is the current Secretary of State of Wisconsin. Now, he's known as an environmental uh, environmental activist before running for public office in 1970, before most of us could spell environment. He was a Wisconsin organiser of the first Earth Day for Gaylord Nelson and co-founded Wisconsin's Environmental Decade with Peter Anderson. Now, he is uh, has a PhD in Col- from Columbia, and uh, he's joining us today to talk about the environment. Welcome to the show, Mr. Secretary. It's great to be here and to meet all the folks in your audience, and hopefully we'll have a interesting conversation now and in the future. This issue is not going away, obviously. I've been doing it for 30 years. So tell us what it was like back in 1970. How, how did the first Earth Day come together? That's a good place to start. I have a talk that I've given in many different venues around the world, which I call Black Smoke Tobacco Life. And it's sort of a, a history of the environmental movement. And we don't want to do the whole thing necessarily now, but we can give an overview and then we can go into different parts of it. Uh, basically, in the late 60s, in the United States, Europe, I'm certainly Australia, and most of the developed or overdeveloped world, we had lots of environmental issues that no one had even recognized. There was black smoke pouring out of the smokestacks. Fish were, were dying uh, one of our famous big lakes, Lake Erie, actually has a river going in called the Cuyahoga, which caught fire because of all the oil and chemicals. People were dying of air pollution in Pittsburgh. Things got pretty bad, and I call that the black smoke, the dead fish period. That was the late 60s. That led to enough public concern and eventually public outrage that we had some action. And a very famous U.S. senator from Wisconsin, Senator Gaylord Nelson, had the idea of having an Earth Day all across the United States where people would stop for a day, students, high school, university, and talk about the environment. He did that because his fellow senators in Washington wouldn't listen to him when he talked about the environment. He had been a a governor of Wisconsin and a real leader on conservation issues, but in Washington he found he was a lone voice. So this was his idea to activate things. And we'll talk more later maybe about that. Uh, that resulted in enough political pressure that during the 70s, with his leadership and other people in Washington, the United States passed the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, the Environmental Protection Act, a number of good laws that made some progress. And that moved us into a period where we were feeling kind of good about things. Then we hit the second period, what I call the, it ain't as easy as we thought it was going to be. 
a lot of issues begin to raise their ugly heads that we hadn't even thought about in the 60s. Climate change, ozone holes, toxic chemicals, acid rain, just to mention a few. And that led into a period of reassessment and discussion that we had some really tough choices to make. It wasn't as easy as putting a filter on a smokestack to get rid of the black smoke, which we did. Using electrostatic precipitators, we could get out the particulate matter and, and clean the black smoke up. But those smokestacks were still putting out uh, carbon dioxide, sulfur oxides, oxides of nitrogen that were causing very serious pollution issues. Well, as we begin to talk about that and the world begin to join in, in 1990, in the 20th anniversary, the Earth Day went global. And, and many, many countries all over the world celebrated Earth Day in 1990, which was the 20th anniversary of it here in this country. Well, the powers that be begin to get nervous. Oil companies, uh, developers, the auto industry, the, the mining companies, the, the big polluters begin to see that their uh, way of doing business could be threatened if environmental issues begin to be dealt with in a meaningful way. And that led to the third stage of the environmental movement, where we are now, sort of a, a kind of a backlash, where politicians who owe their elections in this country and maybe a few other places to the big powerful interests that have lots of money to, to buy the politicians have tried to roll back the environmental laws in the United States anyway. Europe has not been as, as bad about this as we have been. We, we're the real problem here in the United States where I'm sitting at the moment. We've got the most anti-environmental president in history, and until the recent election, the last couple of years, the most anti-environmental Congress. And they've tried to roll back many of the good laws that Senator Nelson and the people sponsored in the 70s. So there's a quick overview of how we got to today. Now, you were recently uh, re-elected. Congratulations. And there was obviously a big swing to the Democrats in both houses in the U.S. Do you think this is a, a sign on behalf of the public in the U.S. that they're not prepared to stand for this, uh, along with a lot of other things, moving forwards? Uh, are we starting to become more environmentally aware, do you think, in the early 21st century? Well, I certainly think we have to because uh, we're right on the edge of a, of a tipping point, if you will, on the climate issue. The whole issue of climate change or climate disruption, as I like to call it, we can talk more about that in a, a later uh, program or whenever you want to. But if we don't do something soon on many of these key issues, we're losing species, we're losing the glaciers, we're losing the permafrost that's melting in, in Canada and in Siberia, which leads to a a negative feedback loop, the more the permafrost melts, the more it releases methane gases that make the climate change issue worse. I mean, we're at a point now, many of the scientists that I could quote and talk about and uh, say that if we don't take action soon, in the next five or ten years, to begin to make changes, we're going to be in real deep doo-doo in another 20 years. Now, as far as the election... I don't think this was an environmental election. The, the news medias and the talking heads on, on the TV shows talk more about the war in Iraq, about political corruption and some of the scandals. The Republicans had their big share of scandals in the United States, and that led, I think, to, to this attitude. I think people were getting tired of Bush, and I think that also led to the Democrats' success in many areas. But the good news behind the scenes from people like me and, and environmental organizations that I work with is many of the Democrats who were elected 
who, even though they may not have been elected because of the environment, are stronger supporters. And many of the leaders, like Barbara Boxer and, and Senator Bingham from North from uh, New Mexico and other leaders around the country, Democrats who will now become the chairpersons of the committees, are much more environmentally attuned than the Republicans who are leaving those positions. So one of the challenging things, I guess, for people like myself, members of the general public who are really uneducated around what the facts are from a climate change perspective, is that there's uh, obviously uh, two arguments happening out there. There's the the Al Gore argument, if we can call it that, which uh, a lot of people are starting to become familiar with via the film An Inconvenient Truth. And then there are the critics of the, the Al Gore argument. Uh, the, the, there are a lot of people out there who I have no doubt are funded in part by fossil fuel organisations and mining companies that are saying, look, it's just a big scare campaign, there's nothing to be worried about, the climate always changes over time, uh, this is really just a big scare campaign and it's you know part of a, a political witch hunt. Can you give us any uh, tips as to how members of the general public can make up their own mind as to whether or not this is an issue that needs to be given the level of attention and seriousness that people like Al Gore are saying it should, or if you know we should worry about some other things? How do, how do we go and research this for ourselves? Can you point yeah, us in the right direction? It's a tough one. It's a tough one because the 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 guys that don't want to change again a short list would be the auto industry, the oil industry, the mining industry, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, they have lots of money and lots of, of power, and they've set up a lot of of non-peer reviewed think tanks. Many of the audience uh, probably know what peer review means. That means if you want to publish a paper on some subject, you've got to submit that paper to half a dozen experts in the field and let them look at it and say whether it's good science or whether it's poppycock. Well, these these uh, polluting industries have spent a lot of money to set up non-peer-reviewed think tanks like the, the Cato Institute, the Heartland Found, the Heritage Foundation, just to mention some in this country, and they publish lots of stuff, but it's not peer-reviewed. So a lot of it is is bunk, quite honestly. And this is so very complicated for the public because the average uh, news person, the average um, politician quotes this material, this non-scientifically reviewed bunk, as if it's the fact. And then that leads to real serious misinformation. Another problem, which we can talk a lot more about, is the media themselves. The media, in the United States anyway, is taught that controversy sells news. So when they present a, a, a news show on television, and they've only got 30 seconds, of course, you do a lot of real education in 30 seconds, they have to have two sides. So they have one person that comes on and says the Al Gore story, this is serious, we should do something, da-da-da-da-da, and uses a lot of scientific terms. Then they go to another person, uh, another doctor, somebody who is in the, in the, the, the payroll of the polluting industry, and he says, no problem, don't worry, this always happens, etc. And then the, the commentator says, so there you see both sides of the story, let's go on to the next, the next item. Yeah. Well, that misrepresents things because that gives the public the idea that it's sort of 50-50. And the truth is it's not 50-50. And let me just quote one item for you, and we can go back to this and I talk a lot more. Uh, there was recently a paper published in the premier scientific journal Science, which is peer-reviewed. They surveyed articles 
on climate issues from 1993 to 2003. That's 10 years. And there were 928 papers published in good scientific journals. Every single paper agreed with the scientific consensus that the climate change issue was a problem and it had to be dealt with. Not a single paper took the opposite point of view. But again, if you, if you listen to these think tanks or watch the news, you'd think there was a real debate. There is no debate in the scientific community, but the public has trouble hearing that. Now, I've, I've got an article here from uh, a, a right-wing um, website, NRO, National Review Online, from early in 2006, that's sort of attacking um, Al Gore, and I'd like to th- um, get your opinion on some of the statements in this article. Now, he says that 60 climatologists from around the world wrote to Canada's Prime Minister recently and, and said, and this is the quote, Observational evidence does not support today's computer climate models, so there is little reason to trust model predictions of the future. Now, that's his uh, quote that he's using to debate the Al Gore position. Uh, How should a member of the general public read something like that? Well, that's interesting. I'd like to know who these 60 climate scientists are because I just mentioned to you uh, that in of 900, over 900 papers published in scientific journals, not one single one of them would agree with that statement. And I've got a lot of other information here. There was a recently a petition signed by 49 Nobel laureates, 63 Medals of Science winners, 175 members of National Academy of Sciences, and 9,000 other world scientists, all saying, for example that this issue is serious, and I can give you more quotes. But the thing that you just read is interesting because what they're attacking are the sort of called the computer models. Rather than discuss the real issue of is CO2 going up, is fossil fuel burning by humans causing that, and is that having ramifications that we should worry about, they don't talk about that. They question the computer models. Well, almost every good scientist would admit that the models are only what they are, models. They cannot predict what's going to happen. They can only show that certain trends are leading in very worrisome directions. And the good scientists would never claim that this model is going to show exactly what will happen. It only gives us information to be sort of uh, guideposts as to the kind of problems we should be concerned about. But these people like to attack those because they can sound real credible that way. Mm. So is, have you found any good online sources that pull together all of this information that my audience can call upon to figure out for themselves and when in discussions with their, their friends and their colleagues that they can use to put together a, a solid story? Certainly I can think of two right off the bat. Uh, one I can quote and one I have to uh, grab my computer and try to look it up for you. The one I know is called... The Heat is On. The Heat is On. And that's a book by a fellow named Ross Gelban. And he has a website called The Heat is On. And, and it's very good. has lots of material that, that you, can, uh, you can access on that subject. The other one would be a website by a professor at Stanford, Steve Snyder. And he has uh, done a lot of really good work. And uh, his website is full of great information about this issue. Uh, here, I'm finding it here. I'm clicking on my computer as we talk. Uh, his website is Stephen 
that's spelled out, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, Snyder, S-C-H-N-E-I-D-E-R, all one word, dot Stanford dot E-D-U. And Steve Snyder, professor of biological scientist and one of the world experts on climate issues and the politics involved. And his website will give you lots of other links and ideas as well. Thanks. I'll put links to those in the show notes for the audience so they can come through to our website and get easy access to it. Great. Now, so, so what are your tips for, again, people who, uh, let's say people are convinced that climate change is an issue and as a member of the general public, either in the United States or in Australia or, or any one of the 70 countries where people are listening to this show, what are the sorts of things that you recommend that we do, both in terms of our personal habits at home and at work and also in terms of the way that we interact with the media and the politicians in our local area to have an impact. I mean, we're coming up for a a uh, state election in Melbourne where I live this weekend. I'm sure that uh, everyone's got elections coming up in some part of the world. Uh, what kind of things can we do? Well, there's a number of things and we can maybe do a whole show on this sometime. Um, the complicated thing is how to get information. And, of course, we all should get information. But I've learned in the practical part of life that people are very busy. They've got their jobs. They're trying to make a living, pay the bills. They've got kids. They've got spouses. And they also want to take a little bit of time off to, to watch the football game on, on, on a weekend because people need to relax. So given that, how do we get people to spend an hour a day looking at websites and finding good information? That's going to be difficult. I think what you're doing here, to, what we're doing now is a good start to help people access information. And the kind of things that Al Gore and others are doing to bring this to the more popular venue, like, like television and movies is a good thing. As far as individuals, there's a whole long list of things. I've written a book on, you know, what you can do and there's many of them out there. You can deal with water conservation, uh, all the gallons of hot water people allow to to run while they're taking a shower. I've got a little gadget on my shower that I've had for 10 years that turns it off. So you, you the water's adjusted the way you want it, good temperature. You get wet, turn it off. Do, do, do your soaping, turn it on. And then, you know, turn it back off, do your shampoo, whatever, turn it back on. So instead of using 10 or 20 gallons of hot water, and I say hot water because you've got to heat that water, that means you're using some sort of fuel, uh, you only use maybe two gallons of water. And, of course, we all know that you can install complex fluorescent uh, light bulbs in your home, particularly in the lights that you have on a lot. When I did that, my light bill went down by 15% by just inputting three or four new light bulbs in the, in the lights that I use a lot. We, there are better appliances, refrigerators and, and things that use a lot less energy, you can insulate, you can put in new windows if your windows are old and you have the, the, the money at hand to purchase the good windows that, that save energy, et cetera, et cetera. We could talk a lot about those different aspects. So there's a whole list of things that people can do at the individual level. A lot of them take some time and they take some financial resources to go out and purchase some of these this new things. The light bulbs and the shower water thing don't cost very much. To buy a new refrigerator or replace your old uh, inefficient one may cost a few hundred dollars, and that's more difficult for many people. One of the things that uh, I've been thinking a bit about recently, I mean, I've been working from home now for the last couple of years, and, and even before that, in my last corporate job, I 
telecommuted quite a lot. And yet, I, I, you know, it's, what, 2006 now. We, we live in the era of laptops and broadband and all these sort of Skype, all of these great tools, mobile phones everywhere. And yet, I, I haven't seen telecommuting uh, take off as much as people forecasted that it would a decade ago. And I often look at all the cars out uh, around Melbourne in peak hour, during the day, I look out my window and see them at peak hour, and I wonder, you know, why there isn't a bigger push on for people to telecommute, work from home, rather than, you know, spending all of this time in the car and putting exhaust fumes out there. Have you seen anything much in the, uh, you know, environmental community to, in terms of creating dialogue with businesses to encourage telecommuting? Well, a lot of people have talked about it, and... Uh some people are trying to do it. I think it's much easier to say than to do in reality. And I've never done this. I'm, I've never seen any research that has analyzed it. But my sort of gut reaction sitting here tonight is that if you go through a list of, of jobs, if you look around you there in Australia or here in the United States and what people are doing, not very many of those jobs really are accommodated by telecommuting. So much of it is in the the retail industry, people working in stores uh, as clerks and in restaurants, uh, people who are actually there doing people-people interaction, and you can't do that from your laptop at home. There are, there's a lot of things that can be done by remote, and many companies are now doing more uh, conference calls to avoid the airplanes, which are expensive and cause tremendous amounts of environmental uh, pollutants to be released. So there is a trend that way. But part of it is just that we're old dogs. Secondly, we're, we're social creatures. We like to sit around a conference table and talk rather than, than to do it on a telephone or do it by a computer. I think the younger generation will be more um, more accommodating because they've grown up with some of this technology uh, than the, the, quote, older generation. So I think those are some of the problems. If you look at some, lots and lots of the jobs just cannot be done remotely. You've got to actually be there on site. Yeah, and a fair point. I think, though, that there are lots of people in information-style jobs that probably aren't trying as hard to uh, engineer telecommuting uh, opportunities for themselves, and we could do more like that. There's also there's been some great television commercials on by one of the uh, electricity companies in Australia that are offering a green package that is talking to people about the amount of energy that televisions and VCRs and DVD players and uh, PCs use when they're on standby mode overnight. Energy vampires, they call them. Right. At least that's what here in the States we're calling them, energy vampires. And you're absolutely right. I've seen the numbers. I don't have them here with me as to the the number of, of kilowatts or BTUs of energy in the United States that is eaten up every day by those vampires. Every person's home in, in the, quote, overdeveloped world like the, that you and I live in have got half a dozen of those things or, or more that are, are slowly using electricity all day long. And I guess, you know, the, the other thing that probably goes through most people's heads when they think about all of the things that they could do as an individual is the, the old chestnut about, well, you know, what does it matter if... Uh, I, uh, you know, turn my television off at the PowerPoint or, or I change my light bulbs when 
big corporations are still churning out all of this pollution and we've got India and China coming online and they're ramping up in a large way with the way that they're using fossil fuels. Why bother? What What is my small effort really going to do in the bigger picture? Yeah, you certainly hit the nail on the head, as we say. Uh, it's so hard to get people to make changes that will impact them in a way that is not comfortable. You know, it's easy to want to be comfortable in our lives, whether it be traveling or, or how we set our thermostats or how we take our showers or whatever it may be. And when an itchy individual person cannot relate to the fact that it, should they be the first one to do it? I have a friend who's a sociologist at the university in, uh, in the United States here, who is her career has been around thinking and writing about these kind of issues, about you know how you can get people to be altruistic, you know how you can get an individual to make a sacrifice or what they perceive as a sacrifice that will benefit. The, the common good when they don't know for sure that it's going to benefit their family, their friends, their neighbors. You know, it, it's all kind of nebulous to them. And and she's pretty pessimistic uh, about whether we can get people to make, quote, sacrifices for the common good. And, you, you, I mean, you've been around this, uh, the, the environmental movement now for over 30 years. I mean, have you, have you found ways of, Getting this through to people over those uh, over that time. Uh, I hate to start out our first conversations, of which hopefully we'll have some more, by being pessimistic. But I'm afraid I am fairly much. I gave a talk a couple of years ago, and a, a young woman uh, from a radio station came up with her mic with her uh, tape recorder and wanted a quote from me for the, her news show, and she said, "Well, Secretary uh, Lafalo, are you an optimist or a pessimist?" And I quickly thought for a minute, and I said, well, I'm sort of a desperate optimist. I wouldn't be doing this if I wasn't optimistic enough to think that we can turn things around. But I am pretty desperate that we'd have to make changes and make fairly radical changes soon. And what complicates it, I just read an article today about Brazil. Brazil just had an election, and they elected a new president, uh, re-elected him, and his big effort is to push through 200 giant development projects. Growth, growth, growth. Roads, dams, power plants in Brazil that will help the people have a quote, better standard of living. But what that'll do to the environment is amazing. And you mentioned China. China's trying to build dozens and dozens of power plants, as we are. The Bush administration wants to build 100 new coal-burning power plants over the next 15 or 20 years in the United States. Those things don't bode well for making the kind of changes we need to avoid the tipping point of our climate issue. So I guess to, to close our, our first chat today, and, and and hopefully we'll be able to get you back on um, after your you're going to Thailand soon, isn't that where your trip is? Yeah, I'm going with a, a professor a friend of mine. We're taking about fifteen or twenty students on an environmental policy field trip to study the impacts of environment in a country like Thailand, which is sort of. You know, it's between the developed world and the underdeveloped world. They're developing, and they have some great parks and resources, many, many valuables, endangered species, birds and things, and they're trying to decide how they can protect that uh, with all the growth that's going to be going on in Asia at the present time. So it'll be interesting. We're going to be gone about 10 days or so, and when I get back, we'll do another chat. That sounds great. But before you leave us, uh, I mean, is there... um 
Is there anything you can tell us about cheese? About what? Cheese. Oh, because I'm from Wisconsin. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I, I figured I had to ask you something about cheese. Well, I, must, uh, I eat cheese. It's, it's a fairly healthy protein. Uh, if you don't eat too much of it, you're liable to put on a pound or two. But uh, Wisconsin is the, the cheese capital of the world at the moment, although people in Vermont and maybe Switzerland and France wouldn't agree completely. Uh, the, the, the interesting thing is California is right n- nibbling on our heels. A few years ago, California... Uh, topped Wisconsin in milk production. We used to produce more milk than any other state. And California, with their giant uh, production systems, where they have three, four, five thousand cows being milked 24 hours a day. And this is another whole environmental issue. These so-called uh, corporate animal feeding operations, or CAFOs, both cows, pigs, turkeys, that'll be another topic for another chat, they have a great environmental uh, impact. So California passed us in milk, and they're trying to pass us in cheese. Uh, and another problem is, how do we ship Wisconsin cheese all the way to Australia? Oh, my goodness. But Wisconsin people are called cheeseheads, and they're kind of famous for that. <laughs> Look, I, I've spent a bit of time in France and, I, and a bit of time in the United States, and um, I, I can't say I've ever had Wisconsin cheese, but Americans just don't get cheese in general. I, I really have to. I'm sorry to break it to you, but compared to no, France, I agree. you guys uh, don't get cheese. Yeah, there's some of the the sort of Velveeta type cheeses, the overly processed cheeses that many Americans think are cheese, don't don't really cut it. No pun intended. <laughs> Look, uh, Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us this uh, sort of background and some tips on uh, what we can do. I guess I'd like to get you back on after your trip to Thailand and talk more about what we can do in terms of influencing, as individuals, what we can do about influencing the political process to get our political leaders to take this issue more seriously and, you know, support legislation that will force our corporations to take it more seriously and also to help us uh, work work with our you know, international partners like China and India and, and, and Brazil and, and ask them to rethink the way that they go about uh, building their economies. Thanks for, thanks for your time. Yep. We really appreciate yep. it. Uh, I agree. It's been good. Uh, let me leave you with, with one, one titillation. I've often said that the most important environmental issue, in the United States anyway, is campaign finance reform. Think about that till next time. Thank you very much, Mr. Secretary. Enjoy your trip. Thank you. And that's where I'll cut the interview.